Hello. Nice to see you, if I haven't seen you already. Uh, we're going to read two passages together. I want to migrate back to where we were in John's Gospel before Easter came along, um, but I still want to uh, pick up the end of the Easter story as well. So we're going to read two passages from John. First of all, the extra passage in John, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, which the earliest manuscripts don't have, um, uh, but which is uh, widely circulated. Um, beyond that, and so it's generally accepted to be part of the gospel. So we're going to read John 8, verse uh, 1. Well, actually, verse 1 just begins with uh, the end of the passage that we looked at before, which was uh, Jesus uh, in dispute with the Pharisees and all sorts of different voices. The last time we looked at this, at John chapter 7, we saw a whole cacophony of different voices all saying, who is he, who is he, who is he? Uh, and so there's this debate opening up. So in terms of the story, we're, we're going back to the place uh, before Jesus has even entered Jerusalem uh, on a donkey. So we're going back in time in terms of the, the narrative. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first. And only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And then from John chapter 21, going to read there just a few verses, five verses from verse 15 to 19 of uh, the account of Jesus' reinstatement of Peter when they're having their picnic breakfast by the Sea of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection. And uh, Jesus tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat after they'd fished all night long fruitlessly or fishlessly. Uh, and uh, then they recognized or they heard the voice, someone telling them to throw the net on the other side. And so they did that and the net was full of fish. They recognized the Lord and Jesus told them to bring some of the fish they just caught and they had this picnic breakfast. Uh, and even then there's some uncertainty. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him. They knew it was the Lord. 
And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so from verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Amen. May God bless his word to our understanding. When I was uh, 17, I was in sixth year at school, and our school was putting on uh, West Side Story because schools generally put on uh, end-of-year extravaganza, and back in the day, it was no different. Uh, and so we were, I was in West Side Story, and I was one of the Jets, if you're familiar with West Side Story. Uh, and uh, it was quite interesting because we were all kind of sort of, you know, Edinburgh, Edin a bunch of Edinburgh kids. So even the sharks were kind of pretty heavily blacked up um, just because there was nobody actually who looked convincing. Oops. But I was one of the Jets. I was Baby John. I actually had lines. I even had a whole verse of a, of a song in, in the Officer Kropke song to sing all by myself. It was great. And uh, one of the, if you're familiar with the story of West Side Story, there's a scene where the Jets go around and taunt Anita, who is uh, the sister of the leader of the Sharks. Uh, and they go and uh, taunt her in a shop, and there's this kind of fairly full-on cruel taunting scene where they finally circle round Anita and dance around her in quite an aggressive, threatening, intimidating sort of way. So I was giving it my best shot. Uh, and we were all circling Anita and uh, taunting and threatening her until, and, the, uh, and this was actually one of the performances. We did two nights uh, at the school, and uh, halfway through my circling endeavors, I felt an almighty rip and discovered that my jeans had ripped in the back from the top to the bottom. And so there I was dancing on the platform in front of all of these uh, parents and other people who'd come along from the school to watch the show with my backside hanging out. So in terms of my embarrassing moments, that's kind of the one that came to mind for me. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, I don't imagine any of you shared any moments around the table uh, of great uh, embarrassment, which might be your all-time worst moments of public embarrassment. And I reckon reading these two passages, that actually just thinking about the story of the woman caught in adultery, there's a difference between a funny story where you either end up, you know, wet in the sea with your mum ripping your skinny jeans off, or you end up with your jeans ripped on a platform in a, in a performance. That's one thing. 
but it's an entirely different story to have the worst sins of your life held up and brought into public exposure. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how your heart or stomach would feel if on these screens behind me there was suddenly a big flash that said, Zubin, (laughs) the story of your life and your worst, most embarrassing secret moments or Bryony's or May's or Iska's or mine or Helen's or anyone who's here. Imagine if it suddenly flashed up our name with the things we do not want people to know about our story or our lives. You see, we're not just talking about a moment of comic embarrassment that it's safe to bring out in a group like this. We're talking about exposure. And here we have two stories, two very different stories, which belong to two very different periods in Jesus' ministry, and yet which have uh, overlaps and similarities. Two people who, uh, in their own way, were condemned. Condemned in different ways, admittedly. But the woman who was caught in adultery was brought into the temple courts by Pharisees and teachers of the law. We're told at the beginning of the passage that this took place shortly after dawn, or at least that's the implication. It says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. Dawn is 6 a.m. in the Hebraic world, in in the world of the New Testament. And so all the people gathered, and he sat down to teach them. Now, we're not given a time frame after that, but it's fairly reasonable to suppose if we're told that this began at dawn, that it was fairly, still fairly early in the morning. And therefore, the assumption is that if this woman was dragged in, then she was caught in flagrante. She was caught in the morning in the wrong bed. And we're not told uh, whether she was a married woman with another man or whether she was a single woman without a husband, but sleeping with a man who was already married. Of course, what we're not told is anything about the man takes two to tango, right? And yet, there's no reference here to the man who was caught in adultery, just the woman. And perhaps that's quite telling in this story because it's a story all about power. It's a story about power and who's got it and what you do with it. Because, of course, the people that brought this poor woman in were powerful men, in a patriarchal society where men made all the decisions, where men called the shots, and where men, particularly these men, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, had absolute power. And so this woman is brought to Jesus and forced to stand in a group. And bear in mind, it's not just Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but we're told that there was a crowd, all the people gathered round him. So, we don't know how many all the people are, but let's just assume in a society like Jerusalem that there would be at least a few in that crowd who would know who that woman was, who might even be related to her, who maybe lived in the next street or the same street. And so, this is not an anonymous crowd because uh, in any small city or large town, and Jerusalem was, relatively speaking, a small city. People know one another. Glasgow is a big city. But you, if you've lived here at all for any length of time, 
uh, will have history and know people. And the longer you've lived here, the chances of seeing someone on a bus or in the street or in the city center, just bumping into someone, increase. So here's a woman who is uh, dragged before this uh, kangaroo court, if you like, this quasi-judicial process where she is brought in to the middle and forced to stand. And note it says they made her stand before the group. It doesn't say they made her stand before Jesus. It said they made her stand before the group. And so suddenly this woman is exposed for her sin. There's no investigation. The conclusion is already reached that she's guilty. Presumably, they caught her. And so they brought her in order to use her, as perhaps the man that she slept with had done the night before, but in order to use her as somebody who they could score points with Jesus through or by means of. So these men, these religious authorities, these men who claimed not just the moral, but the spiritual, the religious high ground, every manner of high ground it was possible to have, claimed to have the authority, the highest authority of all, the authority of Moses on their side, because it's true. The law of Moses does indeed require that a woman caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. Of course, the problem was the same problem that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law faced when they tried to bump Jesus off. You couldn't just do that legally because they were under Roman occupation, which is why they had to pass Jesus on to Pilate and create a whole new set of charges against him that would offend Roman sensibilities, because the ones that offended Jewish ears about blasphemy and so on were of no interest or consequence to the Romans. So they had to present Jesus to Pilate as one who claimed to be a king, thus threatening Caesar's right to rule. And so here we have a woman who is uh, before a court that has no power to actually pass sentence, but by the same token is exercising as much power as it's possible to have And this woman is standing in the middle of it all. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. No name, no identity, no mercy, no investigation, just a judgment. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You see, it wasn't even about the woman. They were using this question, and therefore using this woman. She was just convenient. Her right, her life could be shredded for the sake of scoring a point with Jesus. You can be sure that if she was in this gathering, she would not be sharing that story as an embarrassing moment that once happened to her. You can be sure that except for the intervention of Jesus in this woman's life and the grace that he showed to her 
she wouldn't want to show her face in Jerusalem anywhere ever again. Indeed, you might be sure in a society where brutal treatment and I don't know whether honor killing was much of a feature of Jewish society or not, but you can be fairly sure that there would be male relatives who would get hold of this woman later on for the shame and the scandal that she had brought on the family. And so they claimed Moses as their own. They claimed Moses in their back pocket. They claimed to have a knotty problem for Jesus to solve because if he stoned or passed a judgment that would allow this woman to be stoned, there was a group ready, a group who hung on Jesus' every word. And human nature being what it is, it probably wouldn't have taken very much for Jesus to get the crowd to stone her. They hung on his words, but they maybe didn't fully understand who he was. They knew he was a man of God, a religious authority. And so if Jesus gave the word, was this woman's life in danger because Jesus said so? The irony was that, of course, they, taking the law of Moses, thought they had the right to stone her. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, had the right to judge her, but they did not. <laughs> Judgment is His. All judgment has been entrusted to me by my Father, said Jesus, all authority. Jesus had the right to judge. And it says that Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with His finger. One of the most tantalizing lines in the New Testament. And we do not know what Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger. It must have been, however, quite a powerful gesture. I wonder if they saw or understood what they were seeing. Now, I do not know whether what I'm about to say or suggest is what actually Jesus wrote, and I'm sure you will have heard this suggestion before, but it is the one that's the most compelling to me, which is that when Moses went up Mount Sinai to collect the Ten Commandments, not just to collect them, it's not like an Amazon delivery, <laughs> to receive from God the Ten Commandments and all the other laws and commandments that he would receive, God inscribed the law on two tablets of stone. And he gave those tablets to Moses, and of course, he carried them down the mountain. And the first time Moses came back to discover the people of Israel in his absence, under the influence of Aaron, or at least with his agreement and support, had crafted for themselves a golden idol, like the, 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 the statues and symbols of gods that all the pagan nations around them had them. We've got our one too now. And Moses, in anger and despair, smashed those two tablets of stone. And then he went back up to meet God in his anger and despair, and God gave him again two tablets of stone which the Lord Himself had inscribed. It seems to me a beautiful and powerful moment that as they held up Moses to Jesus, 
as the final arbiter of truth and judgment and the law of God, Jesus, who had been involved in writing the law of Moses on tablets of stone, Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. The Ten Commandments is known by another phrase, the Decalogue, which just means ten words. If you want to Google Hebrew Ten Commandments, you'll see that as much as there's a lot of words in our English translation, they can be uh, summarized in very few words. And so I wonder if Jesus bent down and once more the third time wrote out in the dirt of the earth the Ten Commandments. The one who had given those words, the one who was the Word made flesh. I wonder if Jesus inscribed the words again in the dirt, in the stone of the earth as he bent down. And I wonder if those who were there, gradually beginning to realize what it was that Jesus, the Word made flesh, was writing in the dirt. I wonder if they stopped short. The irony would be lost on many of them, that here was God writing His Word again. Here was God writing His commandments again. Here is God writing the basis of any judgment or condemnation of this woman again, right in front of them all, and neither the woman, nor the Pharisees, nor the teachers of the law, nor any of the people in the group would be able to look at those words written in the ground, if indeed that's what Jesus wrote. As I say, I have no certainty that it was. And not one of them would be able to look at those words and know that they had kept the law of Moses. And so, Jesus straightens up. He does it in two parts. I wonder if he wrote two tablets. <laughs> It says that he bent down and wrote, and they kept on questioning him, perhaps oblivious or not really paying attention to what it was that he was writing. And he straightened up and gave them this most overwhelming of answers. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away. Those who mentally saw their own TV image long before the TV had been invented with their name and their history and their story and their sins and realized very quickly that they were disqualified from casting the first stone. Tellingly, it says that the older ones went first. Tellingly, because the older you are, the more you've sinned. 
And the older you are, the more you've realized how much you've sinned. <laughs> when you're young and naive and zealous and eager, you can kid yourself on that you could have a really good shot at living a sinless life. And then life happens. <laughs> and you discover, as those of us who are the older ones in this gathering know only too well, that the last thing any of us could put our hands up and say we've achieved is sinlessness. <laughs> and so the realization dawned as the words appeared on the ground that there was nobody in that company that could reliably rest on their own achievement to have kept the law of Moses, including the Pharisees. It seems like this was some kind of defining moment. It says that everybody left. This group was there to hear Jesus teach. This was an interruption. Was he not going to carry on? Everybody left. I wonder if her arrival in Jesus' words prompted that sense of conviction in them that they had something urgently to do somewhere else. Until the woman stood there alone with Jesus, and Jesus straightened up again and asked, him what had happened, asked her what had happened to the crowd. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, waiting for his condemnation. And Jesus would not give it then neither do I condemn you. But he didn't leave her without instruction or direction. He didn't leave her without a future. He told her what she was to do next. And she was to go and leave her life of sin. Let's leave that little scene and think of Peter. If this woman's accuser or accusers were around her on the outside, it's reasonable, although again, we don't have the evidence in Scripture, because at no point, apart from Jesus weeping bitterly when he denied three times even knowing Jesus on the night of Jesus' arrest, Nowhere does it tell us how Peter processed that denial. I mean, Peter had been there on the first day. He'd run to the tomb with John. Luke tells us that, and the two disciples, Cleopas and whoever was with Cleopas, maybe Mrs. Cleopas, when they came back to Jerusalem, they found the uh, disciples, well, ten of them, Thomas wasn't there, in the room upstairs and exclaiming, the Lord has, has risen and has appeared to Simon. And so somewhere, tantalizingly and unexplained, there's an appearance to Simon. And so we might well argue, well, whatever had happened in the past, Simon could conclude that uh, things were okay now because Jesus was appearing to him and they were still somehow friends. And yet Jesus clearly in this moment discerned that there was a deeper issue yet unresolved. Because sometimes our accusation does not come from other people. 
If we're honest, we know that other people might show us mercy and kindness and forgiveness, not point fingers or stones at us. But yet, nonetheless, accusation can come and live and take up residence in our own hearts and minds and lives. And so, let's suppose, because this moment is uh, consistently tied to Peter's threefold denial, let us assume that there is not just a passing significance or coincidence to Peter's threefold reinstatement here as we think of it. And this threefold recommissioning of Peter is a beautiful invitation to Peter to let any future usefulness or service or relationship with God in Jesus depend not on Peter's bold claims and the things that he said he could do, not on Peter's man-of-action responses. Lord, you will never wash me. Let us put up three shelters for you. Even if everybody else deserts you, I won't. And time after time after time, Peter shoots off at the mouth, but in the event, we know that there was no real substance behind his words. And entirely different reasons, like the Pharisees, full of words, and yet actually underneath the words, other things. Underneath the words of the Pharisees, probably layers of sinfulness and compromise, certainly murderous intent that were not consistent with the law of Moses. And underneath the surface with Peter, great bravado and intent, but we know at the end of the day, the failure and the weakness and the cowardice that we would all be guilty of. And what I love about this passage is that Jesus' re reinstatement and recommissioning of Peter does not hinge on what Peter might do. We've had enough of Peter saying what he would do. This hinges on Peter facing up to the main and only thing that matters, which is, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Because you see, Jesus knows that you and I and Peter and none of us can promise to do things for Jesus that we're going to keep up or keep good. We've all made promises in prayer, vows in churches. We've sung songs. We've said things. We've made promises to ourselves. We've made promises to other people, as well as making promises to God, and a percentage of them we have kept and fulfilled. And a percentage of them we've either forgotten about or we've just let ourselves or God or other people down. And Jesus is interested not in what Peter might do, although he gives him things to do, but he bases it first in a relationship of love. Now, I know every time I preach this passage, and I've preached it here a few times, I tell you about the Greek, so, you know, you can just take time out if you've heard this one and you know it already. But there's a structure of vocabulary in here, and some 
Scholars and commentators say it's not significant. I beg to differ and think it's hugely significant. So let me just talk you through it if you haven't been there before. There's different words for love in the Greek, okay? There's a verb agapeo, which, or agapao actually, which is the verb related to agape love. And, and that's sacrificial, I will lay my life down for you, utter devotion and love to the ends of the earth. It's the noble love, the noble sacrificing love. And then there is another Greek verb. There are other Greek words for love, but we're just focusing on these two just now because it's the two that appear in this passage. And there's one that is phileo. I love as in I like you. We are friends. We are in relationship with one another. I have fuzzy feelings for you and who you for me. And so it's a relational kind of love, which is about a connection between two people, but it's, it's not of the kind of higher order, noble sacrifice kind of love. Okay, all right, hold those thoughts. And so we have Jesus coming to Peter and saying, Son of John, do you love me more than these? And he uses the verb agapao. Okay? Do you love me? And they used to, in the NIV, they used to translate it, do you truly love me? In other words, will you, uh, do you love me more than these? And the these, it's difficult to read. It's difficult to know. It could mean, do you love me more than these other disciples do? These other guys do? Do you love me more than these uh, fishing nets and boats that you've taken back to? Do you love me more than you love these other guys? So any of the three of those interpretations is possible. It's not clear from the Greek which is the these. But what Peter is asked is, do you love me sacrificially? And Peter in response says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the verb filio. You know that I am in relationship, that I love you interpersonally. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the second time again, Jesus uses that verb, agapeo, agapao, pale. Anyway, I'll need to check. Do you love me? Do you truly love me in that noble, sacrificial, lay down your life for me way? And the second time, Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the verb filio again. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And the third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, Jesus uses the verb filio. So he lowers the bar to meet Peter where he is. Because it seems that Peter cannot now, in all honesty, bring himself the bold Peter who has made endless, big, loud, devoted promises, cannot bring himself to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. Yes, Lord, I will sacrifice my life for you. Peter is undone by his failure, it would seem. And so the third time he said to him, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he comes down to this milder form of love. And so that's why, in my view, it makes sense Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Using the word filial. 
Peter was hurt because Jesus said to him, do you even love me, Peter? (laughs) Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That's my best offering. Please don't challenge even that. You know, sometimes in our uh, walk, we uh, echo that prayer of that man who came asking Jesus' disciples to heal his son who was demon-possessed. And the disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus was up on the mountain of transfiguration. And uh, the man came to Jesus and said, if you can do anything. And Jesus caught him on his words and said, if you can. All things are possible for those who believe. And the man said, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief or help my unbelief. And sometimes it seems that our honest answer to Jesus is, this is where I am right here, right now. I would love to say, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. I would love to say, I will lay down my life for you. I would love to say, I will make the great sacrificial gesture. But you see, Peter now understood what the great sacrificial gesture looked like and meant. You see, it's one thing to make bold promises, but it's another thing when you've seen the person that you love and have pledged your lifetime allegiance to beaten to a pulp and bleeding and dying on a cross of shameful execution, naked and exposed to the elements. Then you start to understand what it is you're saying when you make promises. And so right here, right now, can Peter pledge undying loyalty and sacrificial service? No. No but he can say that he loves Jesus. He can say that he loves Jesus. And it seems to me that that's at this moment enough for Jesus because he sees past, and perhaps it's a relief, I don't know, that Peter is no longer kidding himself about being able to do things that he doesn't really know this time if he's up to. And you know, sometimes that's where you and I are in our relationship with God. And sometimes that's where we start. When I, 14 or 15, I wish I could remember, knelt down at the end of my bed and asked Jesus to come into my life, I had no idea what I was saying. I had no idea what the implications or consequences of saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross for me for my sins. Please, uh, I believe in you. I ask you to come into my life and take me as yours. And I had no idea of the lifetime implications of that decision. Do I regret it? Not for one moment. But you see, you have to be real about where you are and who you are. And if all you can say at the moment is, Jesus, I love you, we'll say it and mean it. And if you think, well, I don't know that I am ready to be a Christian or I could keep it up or whatever, well, that's great. You're in fine company because everybody else who's prayed that prayer has been in exactly the same boat because nobody knows when you say yes to Jesus what it means. But nonetheless, Peter took, uh, sorry, Jesus took Peter aside to have this conversation because Jesus had a task for Peter, and Peter was in the best place to receive the task. Why? Because he was a broken man who now knew he couldn't do it. Before, he was a blind man who thought he could do it, who would rely on his own gung-ho resources to make it happen, and it all fell flat and went horribly wrong. 
So, you know, if you're in a place where you don't think you could or you don't think you've got it, well, hallelujah, because that's the place where Jesus can use you. If you're in the place where you're only too aware of your failure in your past, if you feel you've been shamed externally by other people, or you feel the shame internally from, your, from yourself, well, hallelujah, because my reading of both of these texts is that Jesus was interested in giving this woman a future, not taking her life from her, but giving it back to her with instructions and direction on how to live it better, how to live it in repentance, how to live it in a way that would bring life to her and not result in her being hauled before another kangaroo court. And I don't find any evidence in this passage with Peter of Jesus rubbing his nose in his threefold denial, denial or his failure, simply that Jesus entrusted to him a task, a no small task. Out of all of the group, Jesus takes Peter aside and says, feed my lambs, I'm putting you in charge. Take care of my sheep, you're responsible. Feed my sheep over to you, Peter. And from a place of not even being able to promise undying sacrificial love, but at the very least being able to say that he loved Jesus, Jesus was able to entrust him with a massive task. You don't feel like you've got it? Great, Jesus does. He's not looking for people who've got it all together or who've got all the gifts or who've, got, who've arrived. He's looking for people who know their weakness, who know their shortcoming, who love Him and who have hearts and lives that are open and ready to be used by Him. The woman was condemned externally by the others Peter, I would say, was condemned internally by his own shame and failure. Both had sinned, one against the Word written down, the other against the Word made flesh. Both might rightly have stood condemned for their failure, and both received from Jesus no word of recrimination about their past but hope and a future direction and purpose for the future. Forgiveness and acceptance belong to Jesus. You will not always or often find them from people, although you will. But the forgiveness that matters belongs to Jesus. And Jesus refused to condemn these two despite their obvious guilt. Instead, He released in them future possibilities. New life, He allowed mercy to triumph over judgment. It's the power of the cross as Jesus comes to you and me and instead of a name on a screen says privately as he did to Simon, do you love me? Let's pray together.